going to be in uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Now, last week, if you were here, you were, we saw together that Jesus is high and lifted up. We saw him for who he really is, permanently significant and preeminently supreme. We saw that he is creator of all things, sustainer of all things, restorer of all things by means of his death and resurrection. He is, Jesus is cosmically significant. There is no one more important or supreme than Jesus Christ. And you may be that you think, okay, well, he's that important. What time does he have for us? Paul takes that question up directly in verses 21 through 23. And I'm going to start reading in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, for a bit of context. So follow along with me as I read. For in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Here's our passage for this morning. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. I'm keenly aware that I need God's help as we open God's word. So join me as I pray. Lord, help us this morning to hear your word resonate in our hearts. Pray that we would, (coughs) by the power of your Spirit, hear your voice as your word is preached. We are reliant and dependent upon you in every way, Lord. And in all the week, this is unique. Today, all of us, we sit here and we open God's Word. And Jesus, I pray that through my, though I am weak and vulnerable in all kinds of different ways, Lord, I pray that you would speak through, through me, Lord. It's in your name, Jesus, upon you we rely we find ground for our faith. In you we pray. Amen. Wars, as we know, are won and lost by soldiers on the battlefield. But peace, peace treaties, reconciliation between warring parties are negotiated in the corridors of power by diplomats. Now, arguably, the most important peace treaty in the history of the United States was the Treaty of Paris in 1783, ending the Revolutionary War. 
That peace treaty agreed 236 years ago this month was led by the American delegation of Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and John Jay. And on Great Britain's side, they were represented by David Hartley and Richard Oswald. Now, the reason I mention this is because there was a man named Benjamin West who, in his time, was a very famous painter. He was hired and commissioned by the American-British delegations to paint them at the same table discussing this peace treaty. A picture's worth a thousand words, and this painting tells quite a story with just a glance. You'll see that it's unfinished. On the left are the Americans. On the right, in that blank spot, is where the British delegates ought to have been, but they refused to sit for the portrait. They were at peace, but yet they were still upset, right? This picture tells us that the kind of peace that they made at the Treaty of Paris was not going to be the kind of peace that was going to last. The painting remained unfinished and is unfinished to this day. In some respects, this unfinished painting became an indication of things to come. The U.S. and England might have agreed to a peace treaty, but it was clear hostilities remained. And sure enough, these two countries would beat each other's throats for years, and about three decades later, they would go to war in 1812. They were officially reconciled and at peace, but that peace was fragile and that peace was fleeting. That peace was feeble and temporary. You know, when we come to God as Christians, sometimes we can think that the reconciliation we have with God, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, is a temporary and fragile thing. We can think that the peace that is talked about in the Scriptures for the people of God, is a peace for everybody else because they put themselves together a whole lot better than we do. They look the part. You don't feel the part. You might think because you've sinned, God is now at a lower level. Maybe he's not outright angry, but he's simmering at you. He's, he's disappointed in you. He's putting up with you. He's looking for an opportunity to go to war with you. And you might feel, though you might not have put it this way, that though you signed a peace treaty or he signed a peace treaty with you, God wouldn't pose for the picture with you. That may be how you feel. That may be what things seem like. But if you're a Christian, that's not the way things really are. My goal for us each in this room today is not merely to be aware of the peace we have with God, but to be convinced and confident in the peace we have with God. I want this peace that we have with God because of Christ to be something we enjoy, something we take courage in, something we gain confidence from, something we stand on, something we gain strength from, something that we are convinced of. In fact, if I were to summarize in one sentence what the purpose of Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, it'd be this. Grasp the peace that's already yours. 
because that peace is not like the Treaty of Paris, fragile and fleeting. Grasp the peace that is already yours. Now to understand this peace, you need to understand how bad things were at first. So the first thought Paul gives us is that this peace is a peace with enemies. Now, that makes sense. <coughs> for, for there to be peace, there has to be two warring parties. Paul reminds the Colossians and everyone, who, everyone else who are followers of Jesus what they once were before they met Jesus. Look at verse 20 in chapter 1. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. Now, for that peace to be real, there have to be two warring parties. Now, Paul, in verse 21, describes the battlefield. He describes the combatants. He describes the soldiers. He describes the war. Verse 21. And you, that's not singular, that's plural. All of you, and all of you, all of you Christians, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Verse 21 is the sad state of every person who does not follow Jesus Christ. They are what? Alienated from God. They are hostile in mind toward God. They are doing evil evil deeds toward everyone else as a result of this alienation and hostility. To be alienated from God is to be estranged from the Creator. The Creator God, the good Creator, has created all things, even us. And to be alienated means to run away, to move away, to want nothing to do with this God. That's what mankind is apart from God. More than that, mankind is hostile in mind toward God. Either not regarding God at all, or Regarding him with outright antagonism, mankind is hostile in mind. And alienation and hostility always leads to evil deeds. War with God will lead to war with others in all kinds of relationships, every one we have. Put all these things together and mankind is at war with God. Paul wants the Colossians to understand they were once at war. He wants them to understand you were in a worse spot than you think. Now, you might sit here and think, that's all a little bit too dramatic. This war language sounds a bit melodramatic. You might be thinking, I wasn't that bad. I didn't go around killing people, stealing big amounts of money, lying. You might say, I, was, I might not have followed Jesus, but I wasn't at war with God. Or maybe you're here, and you're not following Jesus. And you read this and think, whoa, I don't feel like I'm at war with anyone, much less God. How are we to make sense of this? It's an issue of justice, really. It's an issue of justice. Let's try to get there from a side door. Imagine with me, someone breaks into your home, steals all your belongings, and beats one of your family members within an inch of her life. Further imagine, as you stand vigil at the hospital, she hovers near death, and you get a phone call from the police. The police say, we wanted you to know that we've apprehended the criminal, 
You breathe a sigh of relief. And the man on the other line says, he wanted, the criminal wanted to pass on a message to you. He wanted you to know that he's very sorry. Really sorry. And because he gave such a clear apology, we let him go. We just wanted you to know. Now, how would you feel? Probably incensed. Why? Because that's not fair. That's completely unjust. Why? Because criminals who do that need to pay for their crimes. He needs to be incarcerated to pay for the crimes committed against you and your family. And if dangerous criminals were able to get off with a mere apology, with mere words, peace would vanish in our streets. You see, society keeps peace by enforcing its laws. Let me ask this question. How or what happens when we break God's law? Peace is broken. Just the same. God is our creator, and he has said that mankind must love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and with all of our strength. And if we don't, we break his law. He's not going to be okay with us just saying, hey, sorry, words are not enough. That would be unjust. No, someone needs to pay. And the reality is, it's not just that our story is that we don't love God enough. We have rebelled against God's rule. He created us, and we acted as if we were our own creator and needed no God. If God merely accepted an apology with no payment, that would be completely and wildly unjust. The Bible teaches that sin, before it's against anyone else, is first and foremost against God. God is always the most aggrieved party when we do wrong. Have you ever spoken hateful words to your sister? They're to your sister, but first they're to God. Have you ever stolen hours from your employer? That's against your employer, but first it's toward God. Have you ever cheated on an exam? It's against your teacher and the class, but first it's against God. Have you ever had too much to drink and drove? It's against all who are out on the road, but first and foremost it's against God. Have you ever lied to make yourself look better? It's against whoever you're talking to, but first and foremost, it's against God. Something more than sorry is in order to make things right. Not only is Paul not overstating the case to say that mankind, apart from Jesus, is at war with God, but he hasn't really even talked about the half of it. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, what were you at one time? Alienated? Hostile in mind? Doing evil deeds? We were enemies. We were enemies. But we're not left there. We now hear, not just that we were enemies, but that we have a new position. Verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. That is a clunky, 
clunky sentence right there. Listen, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. That's a strange thing. It's clunky. It's a clunky way to say it, but it's clear. What's Paul saying? Jesus has purchased peace, reconciling peace, by dying in what? His body of flesh. He wants to make it clear that Jesus did the reconciling work for mankind. There was no delegation sent from humanity to barter or negotiate with God. Mankind was at war with God. So instead of God waiting for man to come to him, God became a man to come to them, to die and make peace with mankind, to die in his body of flesh by his death. Jesus is the answer to how God deals with broken laws and disobedience. You see, as Christians, we ask for forgiveness, but the reason we can ask for forgiveness, the reason it is just for God to extend forgiveness to us is because someone has already paid for our sins. Because the peace is not just a made-up thing. The hostilities have been poured out on Jesus. God alienated His Son, was hostile toward our Savior, treated Him as if He did all those evil deeds. Why? So that we might have peace. And this should tell us that our disobedience is serious, no matter how it feels. If you don't feel like you're at war, let's set our feelings aside and say, well, I've been person that had that Jesus to pay for what I've done Jesus had to die so that's bad he did all the reconciling work by himself he died in the in his body of flesh for our peace he did not marshal us to fight evil to gain peace he did not call us to religious tradition to gain peace he did not encourage obedience so that we might gain peace he died to win our peace. But that's not all. Peace is good news. But that's not all we have. Look at verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Why? In order to present you, that's not just you individual, that's all of us, as Christians, as a church, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In other words, we're not just reconciled with God. We don't just have an uneasy peace with God. We are something completely different. What are we? Holy, blameless, above reproach. Now that seems like make-believe. That seems like make-believe. Jesus, at his death, in his body of flesh, he did more than just purchase for us peace, but he has changed us. We are now presented to God today as holy, blameless, and above reproach. This is so important for us to understand. In order to gain confidence from the peace that we have with God, we need to understand that Jesus, he died. You might be tempted to think that I might have peace with God, but it's a feeble, it's a fragile, it's a temporary thing. 
I'm damaged goods. And I'm okay as long as I don't mess up too badly. False. That is not true. It's not just that the hostilities between us and God have ceased, but also that the reconciliating power of His peace has, de- has made us holy, blameless, and above reproach toward God. Remember we said it sounded maybe a bit dramatic to say that apart from Jesus, mankind is alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil, evil deeds That may have seemed dramatic, but more dramatic than that is who we are now in Jesus. I would never, ever believe that that's who I am, apart from reading it in the Scriptures. See, if you rely on your feelings to determine how you are or what you think of yourself, you will fall. If you rely on how well you did yesterday or the day before that or the week before that, you will not have peace. But if we rely on what God says about His people, that we are holy, blameless, and above reproach, then we can gain hope. Then we can have confidence. Then we can say, yes, this peace is for me. We are holy. That means we're set apart. In other places, we're called saints. Will we struggle with sin? Yes. But our sins are no longer held against us because we have peace in his body of flesh by his death. We're blameless. That means there is no power, no person, no one who can point the finger at you and say, you will be punished. No. Do we still sin? Yes. But our sins are no longer a barrier between us and God. Why? Because we have peace in His body of flesh by His death. We are above reproach. No one, much less God, can find fault. Why? Because Christ has died for us. You may feel dirty. You may recognize that you have fallen short. You may feel like you're not enough. Guess what? The ground for our our new identity is Jesus. We have a new position. Once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, now we are holy, blameless, and above reproach. And this is how it goes with Jesus. See, this is a principle as Christians we need to remember. (laughs) With Jesus, well, first, without Jesus, we were worse than we thought. With Jesus, we're better off than we ever dared to hope. You see, here's where our confidence must be in God's Word and not our feelings. Nobody in this room feels holy enough. Maybe you can look back and see a ton of unholiness. Room for blame. And lose confidence. You see, if you look at your own obedience, you will not be confident in the peace that comes in his death. You see, we must believe what the scriptures say about us Christians. I would never say, ever, that we are holy, 
blameless and above reproach unless we read it in the Word of God. I don't feel that way. But there's something more authoritative than my feelings. There's something more authoritative than my feelings. It's the Word of God. We need to grab this and have confidence in the peace that we have through Jesus. Those who genuinely follow Jesus have a forever peace with God and are holy, blameless, and above reproach before God. Will you be perfect? No. Will you be sinless? No. But I invite you to believe what God's Word says. Your sin, that was bad, but Jesus is better. Your sin was bad. You were at war with Him, but He has purchased peace for you in the body of His flesh. No matter how you feel. Notice there is no appeal to feelings in this. Do you feel holy? That's not what's asked here. No, no, no. Those who believe in Jesus and trust in his sacrifice are holy. They are above reproach. They are blameless. We can be confident, not because of anything we did, but because the ground of our confidence is Jesus Christ. This is why it's so important for us to come together as believers weekly and remember who we serve as we proclaim together what Jesus has done and who He is through song, as we pray in His name and believe in His promises and see His Word preached and hear Him raised high. He's out there on a daily basis. We're not going to feel like the Word says we are. Now, there might be some cynical ones among us who are thinking right now, if Christians are already holy, already saints, if they're already blameless and above reproach, no matter what they do, they can live however they want. Sin and do whatever they want, and it doesn't matter. No, it matters greatly. We've seen we were once enemies. We've seen we're now in a position of peace. And lastly, we hear a call to stand. Verse 23, if, if introduces a conditional phrase, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. You see, Paul just got done, he just got finished describing this fantastic work of Jesus and the benefit for his followers, and then he says, if. Because continuing in the faith is proof that your faith in Jesus is real. The greatest proof that you are in good stead with Christ is that you continue to follow Him. You see, one of the primary marks of authentic Christianity, if not the primary mark of authentic Christianity, is perseverance. Not stopping. What does it say here? Not shifting. Not shifting. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. How do we know? 
Because as Christians, if we do not shift from the hope that we've heard in the gospel, if we don't shift from that message, that means we want to please the Lord. And no one can want to please the Lord if they do not first know the Lord. We must stick close to His Word. We must stay loyal to Jesus. We must be stable and steadfast, being convinced that our hope today, tomorrow, and all the days for the rest of our lives is found only in Jesus. The biggest danger for all of us in this room is that we shift from the hope of the gospel that we've heard. It is a great temptation to shift our hope to other things, things that promise happiness, things that promise meaning, things that infuse us with excitement, messages of other gospels that provide a false hope. How do we protect ourselves from shifting? How do we protect ourselves from shifting from the hope generated by the gospel of Jesus Christ? We must fix our eyes on Him. It's easy to see those bad things. Bad things are obvious. Stealing, killing, destroying, those things. I would hazard to say most of us aren't tempted in that way to run off that way. The things that I think for us in 21st century suburbia is the danger, the, shift, the danger that comes through the shifting toward false hopes. There is a danger in shifting away from the hope of Jesus by running after good things, but yet not ultimate things. Like what? Like money. It's easy to think if I had a little bit more money, I'd be okay. Maybe another five, maybe another ten, maybe another fifteen thousand dollars. More money would help me rest and my life would be better. Having enough money is not wrong. It's not. But if your hope is in your money, your hope is not in Jesus. And you will shift. Some of us are tempted to hope in money. Maybe you, or in family, maybe you define your hope by how your family is doing. If your kids are okay, you're okay. Now, it's not wrong to want good for your kids, but it's always wrong to ask your kids to be the carriers of your hope. Family is a wonderful blessing, but a rotten Savior. Hope in Jesus, not in your children. Career. It's easy to pin your hopes on your career so that you might advance and gain power and respect and influence that comes with the job, and fulfillment. Fulfillment, a good job is not wrong. It's enjoyable. But it's always wrong to place your hope in what you do. No job can bear the crushing weight of your hopes. Only Jesus can bear that weight. Maybe you're tempted to trust in or hope in relationships. Maybe you base your value on who you are with. Relationships can be a wonderful blessing from God, but they are insufficient to carry the weight of our hopes. Only Jesus can do that. If we ask someone to make us happy and fulfilled, we're asking them to be our Savior. Hope in anything besides Jesus will cause us to shift. 
to not stand stable and be steadfast. Followers of Jesus, they are far from perfect, but they stick by him. So what are we called to do today? We're called, very simply, verse 23, continue in the faith. We're not called to go forth and slay the wicked. No, continue in the faith. We're not called to lead a crusade to bring a million people to the Lord. No, continue in the faith. We're not called to do miracles and to call fire down from heaven. We're called to continue in the faith. Those who continue to follow Jesus are the very ones who have confidence in the peace Jesus gives. So let's put some of this together. Let's build our confidence in the peace, Christians, we have in Christ. Two thoughts as we wind down. First, recall what we once were. Recall what we once were. It might seem strange. Verse 21 might seem strange. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, why would Paul say this to this church? Why would he remind them of how bad they were? Why is it good for us even to remember who we were before we met Jesus? To make us feel bad? To focus unduly on sin? No. To show us how very much Jesus has done for us. You see, if we weren't really that bad off and we just needed a nudge from Jesus, needed a little push in the right direction, then Jesus and the peace he gives is meh. Eh. But if we were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, at war with God, and we have been given peace because Jesus has taken that hostility upon himself, then there's something completely different. We were alienated. What it does is it draws attention away from who we were to who Jesus is and what he's done. And every person in this room, if you're a believer, you have been impacted by the power of God. He has taken you who were once alienated and brought you near. He has taken you who were once hostile to him and given you peace. He has taken you who once did evil deeds and said, they will not pay for those. My son will. And we need to remember that who we were because then we see how important Jesus is. If you don't see how bad things really were, you'll never be amazed how good things can be and the peace that we have in Him. If you don't know what you've been saved from, the peace you now have with God is always going to seem fragile and fleeting. But we can be confident of better things. We can be confident of our peace with God because we were bad. We were bad off. We were at war, but now we're not. Recall who we were. Secondly, ground your confidence correctly. Now, why can we be confident that God is at peace with us? Because Jesus died. 
Jesus died. Do you realize here in verse 23, he says, if you continue in the faith. He doesn't say how much faith we ought to have. He doesn't say that we need to have faith to move mountains. He doesn't say that our faith needs to be the kind that raises people from the dead. But he says, if you have faith. Let's say you have just a tiny little bit of fledgling faith in Jesus. That's enough. But if you focus on how much you believe, the peace will always seem fragile and fleeting. But if you focus on the ground of our hope, Jesus Christ, we can be confident that this peace is much more than words on a page. But it's our very hope our very confidence. We can lay hold of this. God is not refusing to pose with us in the picture, simmering, looking for an opportunity to get us back. No. He spent everything on Jesus. Be confident in your peace with God. Let's pray.